Bible to the book of Colossians. Um, we're going to read starting in, uh, we'll be in chapter 1. I'm going to read starting in, in verse 9. You're going to have to turn there if you want to uh, see all of that, because I'm pretty sure what's on the board is going to be 21 to 23. Um, man, I just want to express my thanks to you for this. This is sweet and, and fun. Uh, I can't wait to plan it and see what grows. <laughs> yeah. Will, 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 the, will the Duncan card that's on there sprout a hundred more? That's exciting. Um, so we're going to read uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 9. We'll read to 23, and then we're going to pray and spend some time exploring God's word. Uh, it is, let me just say again, uh, it is an honor to be able to share the word with you week in and week out. Uh, to be to be the one who who presents God's word to this church, uh, it's something that uh, I think many times people talk about, and, and uh, they talk about the weight of it and how intimidating it is, and, and the responsibility of it. But the truth is, it's true. Enter it mixed into that though. There's a joy in in being able to be the one who who speaks and who. Uh, defends the righteousness of God and who talks about his grace and his love. There's, there's something powerful about that that is a joy. And so thank you. Um, and it's also a privilege to be involved in, uh, in, in many of your lives in the middle of, of difficult or um, joyous moments. And so thank you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 says, And so from the day... That we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all, the endur- for all endurance and patience with joy." giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, 
became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather here and hear your word. When we, when we think about our state before you, before we met you, or perhaps even the condition that we're in right now, if we just kind of wandered into church this morning and, and, and don't really know exactly what, what, what's going on, Lord, we came to you desperate and in need and far from you and alienated from you because of the things which we've done willfully, because of of the pattern of our thinking, because of the direction of our lives. And you, in grace and kindness, showed us affection. We thank you for that grace. We thank you for your love and your care of us. And we pray, Lord, that that as there are many things, we absorb information all the time. We talk to ourselves all the time. There are many ways in which we override or rewrite or ignore or disagree with the things that you say. But we pray as you speak to us that we would hear the truth and we would challenge our behavior, the the teaching of the world, the voice that lives inside that tells us who we are and that, that we would say your word is truth and what you say is true and good and right. And that would be what we cling to, not the way that we feel, not the definitions that the world feeds to us and not the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We pray that we would live by faith and that we would trust in your word because it is good and true. And it helps us in the middle of our every need, Lord. And so we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your graciousness in giving us your word. And we pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we, we live in uh, match-up culture, don't we? We love to see one group or thing come against another group or thing, right? Today, there will be many match-ups on television, right? And we root for different teams, and we want our team to uh, triumph over the other team. There, there are teams I have, I, have, I, have, I have, okay, I have a loyalty to the, to the Baltimore Ravens. I want them to win. I want them to win when they play because tomorrow I want free coffee. Do they play today? We play today. Yeah, I want them to win because I want something from it, right? And so I'm invested. I want to see what happens when the, when the two teams come against one another. You know, when, when our, our Packers go out on the field and they face their enemies, we want to see who wins. And there are people who are invested in, in one political candidate winning against another, right? Um, what happens when this force meets that force? The, the founder of a company called BlendTech, Right? Maybe, maybe you've heard of this. He, he, was, he was thinking about his product a number of years ago and thinking, how do I show people how powerful my product is? Now, this is Blendtec, okay? So, kids, if you're listening, don't try this at home. What he did is he, he went on YouTube and he started a series called Will It Blend? Right? And, and so he started really simple. He took a, a box of matches and he, and he dropped it into the blender, you know, and, you know, his 
Blendtec blender made short work of it. But then he started moving on to bigger and better things. And so Apple says, here, we have the latest version of the iPhone. He's like, will it blend? What happens when your you know, precious device meets my blender? And every single video that I've seen, I don't know that he puts failures uh, uh, online, but everything that meets this blender is completely and utterly destroyed and shredded. And it, a lot of times it just takes seconds. Sometimes it's like it bounces around and you think, oh, this might be something that survives. But eventually everything succumbs to the blender. Will it blend? The answer is yes, it will, right? The, 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 the blender is more powerful. Here, here's something that, that, I, that I, I think many of us struggle with, and this is something that the false teachers in the city of Colossae were taking advantage of, right? We, we live in our own heads. We, we are exposed to our thinking and our deeds. We hear the truth of the gospel that Jesus comes to save us from our sins, from our fallen condition. And then as we examine ourselves over and over and over, many times we think our sins are too great. Our sins are too extreme. How could God love me when I keep on failing? We look at verse 15 through 20 and we see this incredible, exalted vision of who Jesus is. We talked about that last week. Who he is, the Lord of all creation and the Lord of the church. And and then we look at him in comparison to ourselves and the way that we think and the way that we react and the way that we, we instinctively respond to certain situations. And we think, how could God love me? How could he care for me? How could he want to save me? And in part, it's, I think we, ha- we, ha- we have a thinking or, or we, we, we take our own kind of uh, Proverbs orientation towards the world, right? That says that, uh, that, that, that bad company ruins good morals, right? Or, or that one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, right? You know, and those are, those are things that are said and repeated because in a lot of senses and circumstances, they're true. And we think somehow... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up. I'm going to ruin it. It can't, it can't be perfectly true. It can't be, it, it, I just, I can't trust it. What Paul says here, what he is, is moving from in verse 15 through 20, is he's, he's giving the most exalted examination of Christ, possibly, that's in the entire Bible. Right? That's what some Bible scholars say. There's, there's nothing more lofty or glorious than this. And some, then some other scholar says, no, what about this? And then they argue with one another. Right? Um, but, but what we have here is an image of Jesus that is so incredible and powerful. And then it meets, it mashes up against verse 21 that speaks about who we are. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What happens when that purity and power meets impurity and fallenness, right? Now, here's what I think is important. Many of us have an answer in our heads, and we know exactly what happens. We're like, oh, that Bible says this, that, and the other thing. 
But then in our actual experience, the voice that, that nags inside says, you are unrighteous. You are unloved. You are a failure. You have messed this thing up and God cannot love you because of, of the way that you are, because of your patterns or because of your, your behavior. It's a, it's a will it blend moment, right? Like which, what, it, do, do I defeat the gospel because of who I am, because of, of my fallenness? Let's look at what, what Paul says here. In verse 21, he talks about our past alienation from God. Our, our past alienation. He's talking to the Gentiles, and uh, he says to uh, the Gentiles, by the way, right there, are, are, are those who, uh, who are part of the, the ethnic line of Abraham, who uh, are, are the, the family and the, the tribe that produce uh, Jesus, the Messiah, and, uh, and, and, and they have the temple and all the Old Testament history, and then there's everybody else, the Gentiles, right? People who are not part of Israel. And so uh, most likely... You're a Gentile. That's right. Um, so uh, it's interesting. If you look in the Old Testament, the way that the Jews describe themselves is they call themselves the people. And then they call the Gentiles not the people. Right. <laughs> There's us, the blessed of God, who who have all of his promises and, and his blessings. And then there's everybody else. Right. And so what Paul is saying here, he's a Jew and he's speaking to Gentiles and he says, you, y'all Gentiles, you were once alienated hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. That's who you were ethnically as a people. Now, if you're old enough to remember uh, Sesame Street, this is where I think of Grover, right? You remember that? He did the, he did the near and far thing, right? Where, where he's like, he, you know, and, and so he's at the front of the camera, and he's near, and then he runs all the way back, and, and he's like, far. And that's, that's the picture of the Gentiles. The Jews... They, they had the temple, they had the sacrifices, they had the word, they had all of these, these things. Their, their ancestors, forefathers, had, had crossed, through, uh, the, the, they crossed through the Red Sea, they built a tabernacle. All of the, they, their, their uh, forefathers had, had conquered the land, and, and some of them had been present when David fought Goliath, and they had all of these benefits and blessings that pointed them to Messiah. The Gentiles were distant ethnically from God. They were, they were alienated. They had no part or no claim to what Messiah came to bring to the world, the blessing of God. But it's not just their ethnicity. It's also... Their, their intent and their attitude. It says that they're not just ethnically distant, they're also uh, mentally distant. They're hostile in mind. The, 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 the mind of the average human being, of every human being, says when it, when it contemplates what's right, right? When it, when it contemplates what is good, and, and pure, and what God would have us do, it also says, well, aren't there situations where I can not do that? Isn't, aren't there going to be situations where that's unfair or I get taken advantage of? 
right? Isn't, isn't that unjust of God to demand that of, of me? There's a, there's a hostility towards being told what to do and how to do it and when to do it, right? We're just like, no, I'm going to do my own thing when I want. Paul says that that's hostility of, of mind. And it's not just that, that, that we, we are hostile in our thinking, but it says that we do evil deeds, We're intentionally and willfully active in fighting back against the way God tells us to live. He says, don't do this. And we're like, oh, I'm definitely doing that. (laughs) Don't don't ever think this way. Well, that's the way I think. How dare you talk to me that way, God? Do this. And we say, no way I'm going to do that. We we disobey uh, actively and we sometimes disobey through our inactivity. The book of Romans says that we look out at the world and we see God's power, right? In in Romans uh, 1, 18, 19, and 20, we see God's power and we see that there is right and wrong. And we know this truth in our hearts and we rebel against it. We say, how dare he demand certain things from me? What gives him the right? Romans 8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind, the mind that says um, that what we see and, and the way that we interact with the world, the, the, the real world, right, where, where I live, that's all good. Your, your imaginary world where everybody obeys God and, and behaves. But I live in the real world. That the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are locked in to this sinfulness. There is, a, there is an alienation from God that is cemented in place. That's who we are. That's our identity. And now we're going we're gonna to take that and we're going to toss it into the blender, right? And we're going to say, what happens in this matchup? Who wins? I, I love uh, one scholar said in, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that there's 13 assertions about Christ in that passage. 13 assertions. Don't be nervous, right? That's a bad number. It's just a number. Jesus is more powerful than any number. It says in, in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, that he is the image of the invisible God, right? You want, you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He's the the image of him. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the originator of creation. He's not just the designer, but he's the agent of it. And he's also the goal of creation. And he exists before creation. He's he's the one who sustains all things, right? What, What are we on now? Image, firstborn, originator, agent, goal. He's before creation. He's the sustainer of creation. That's eight. Number nine is that he's the head of the church. He's the the first member of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead, right? He's the first one to experience resurrection. He he paid the penalty in his flesh. He's the, the preeminent and the first one among the church. He's the fullness of God. He's the reconciler of all things to himself, verse 20 says, and he's the maker of peace. What happens when he encounters 
our sinfulness. It is completely and utterly undone. It is completely and utterly dealt with and destroyed. Here's, here's I think, a major problem in the thinking of, of many believers. We imagine that our sins are so enormous, right? And in terms of, of offense against the holiness of God, God, God never does any wrong. There's no unrighteousness in him. He, he cannot be tempted by evil. He cannot uh, be drawn off into, into anything that's immoral or impure. His eyes, the scriptures say, are too pure to look upon evil. He, he is absolutely and utterly perfect in every way. And that means that the, even the slightest imperfection in us Right? You just take the word slightest away and, and you encounter perfection. Right? And so, so we think his holiness is, is of such magnitude that that makes my holiness an incurable thing. Which is just simply is not true. His graciousness and his power and his purity, when, when those things combine in the work of Jesus on the cross, when death itself meets Jesus, it dies. Amen. When sinfulness is presented to Jesus, it is purified, it is cleansed, and it is destroyed. When you look at this passage, right, what, what you see is that these things are described in the past tense, right? It says, you, you were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. But these things have been reconciled and purified. They have been canceled out. They've been, they've been dealt with exhaustively. And the scripture gives us a number of images that we might know that that's the way that it works. The one that comes to mind, there's, a, there's an image that shows up in the Old Testament over and over and over again as, as sinful nations are confronted for their wickedness, right? God, uh, through the prophets, tells them that the cup of God's wrath is going to come around for them. And think about how, how sinister and terrifying this, this feels or sounds when it's, it's communicated, that, that every nation is going to be given the cup to drink, right? And the cup is filled with the wine of God's wrath, and they're going to reel and stagger, right? So, so when, when God's fury and wrath comes upon them, they're going to be confused and off balance, and then he's going to destroy them, right? That's a terrifying image, isn't it? Not only are you going to be drunk, he's going to come along and knock you over, right? Like, he's going to deal with you exhaustively. And then Jesus says things to his disciples like, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized in? And the disciples are like, of course we can. You know, they have no idea what they're talking about. Quiet, knuckleheads, right? So then Jesus is in the garden. He's praying to his father and he says, if it's possible, can't you let this cup pass from me? Isn't, can't, can't we find another way? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the image there is that Jesus is, is, is coming to drink the cup of God's judgment. 
He's coming to drink the cup of God's judgment, which is given to sinners and wrongdoers and rebels and, and those who refuse to submit to God's law and God's will and God's way, right? They're, they're going to be punished and destroyed. And so he goes to the cross and he's given the cup. And he drinks down the wrath of God, not for his own evil deeds, because he has not committed any sins. That's what the scripture says. He's like us in all ways, yet without sin. And so he is completely and utterly pure, but he takes the cup to himself. And when he drinks down the wrath of God for every evil deed that you have committed and every intentionally wicked thought that I've ever embraced... And everything that your mind has been drawn to uh, against your will and you suddenly start to ponder something that you shouldn't and you're thinking about doing something, all those things are poured into that cup and Jesus drinks that all down to the point where he's able to say on the cross just before he dies, it is finished. Sin paid for. Do you know what that means? Think, think about this, right? We think I am Wicked, how could God love me? Why? One, we allow ourselves to go there. We, we let that thought dominate in our, in our thinking instead of coming to Christ and saying, thank you for forgiving me and believing that we're forgiven. We also fall victim to the, to the endless lies of the devil because he wants you to think that way and be defeated. And you buy into the propaganda, we buy into the propaganda of the world that says that, that we're imperfect and we're flawed and we're horrible and detestable people, right? Trust me, the world says that to us over and over again because we don't have enough money in our retirement account, you know, because termites are going to destroy our house. You know, over and over, we're told exactly how awful we are and that we need something else. And we think, I am too great a sinner. I'm too horrible to be saved, right? And this is what, what God is teaching us, particularly in that, in that image, and there are dozens of them in the scriptures. If Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for us, when judgment comes, when it is time for Keith to be judged, and the cup is handed to me. You know what's in it? Nothing. There's nothing there. Because I'm able to look to my Savior and I say, you did, that for, you did that for me? Thank you. You did that, you did that for me. We, we, we think that we're filling the cup back up, right? We think that, that Jesus is just like, I'm just going to have a sip and put it down. right? I'll just drink a little because that's nasty. That's not the way he is. He drinks it all. Past sins, present sins, and future dealt with in that moment on the cross. Look at what it says. You once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. What does it say? Now you're perfect? No. It moves from us to the work of Christ. And so it moves from our past alienation to our present reconciliation. It says in verse 22 that he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We are presently reconciled at this moment. You might not, you might not see this. Um, there's there's a, a little bit of shade that Paul is throwing at the false teachers here. 
right? Um, they they are of the uh, they're 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 of the opinion. Haven't you guys seen uh, anybody looked at Wendy's on Twitter? <laughs> Wendy's is like they they are a savage company. They are hysterical. If you ever get a chance, like if you're ever like, what should I do right now? You know, and you don't want to watch some goofy documentary, just go look at Wendy's Twitter feed. Um, one of them, uh, it says, my girlfriend wants McDonald's, but I want Wendy's. What do I do? And Wendy's, the company, responds, there are plenty of fish in the sea. <laughs> that is savage, right? Um, another person sends to them, McDonald's is better, right? And the person at Wendy's says, yeah, at freezing their hamburgers, right? Anything that they say, they, they respond back. How do you keep your, your burgers uh, fresh without freezing them? And they respond back, have you heard of refrigerators? It's like they're, they, they are savage, right? Paul is coming against the teaching of the Colossians and they're saying, oh, you think that Jesus was a real man and you think that he did this and you think that he did this and you think that just, that just putting your faith and trust in him saves you, but you don't have the secret knowledge and the Colossians are all worried and disrupted. Paul, Paul says, here, uh, now this isn't gonna this isn't gonna be as funny as Wendy's, okay? I just I want you to know what, what what's being said here. Um, they they are saying that Jesus wasn't real; that he was like this ghost that that moved through the world. He he talks about how how Jesus is is the head of the body, the church, in verse eighteen, the spiritual body of Christ. And what were the false teachers going to say? They're going to say, "See, Paul agrees with us." In verse eighteen, but then in verse twenty-two, he says he's now reconciled in his body of flesh. He's reconciled by you in his body of flesh by his death. Right? They were like, "Yeah, Paul," and now he's going to come back around. And he's going to undermine them and and say, look, apart from a physical body and a physical death, no salvation at all. This is not just you need to know some things in order to be saved, right? You need to believe some secret teaching in order to be saved. It's God did something profound, powerful in the physical life of Christ on the earth. And if he doesn't have a body, if, if he doesn't physically take your punishment, then you are not saved. It's not, it's not you doing mental gymnastics, trying to sweep sin under, under the rug and, and, and come up with some formula by which God is, is satisfied you, satisfied with you. It's that, it's that sin's not swept under the rug. It is punished. It is dealt with physically in Christ. He has to be physical in order for us to receive redemption and grace. We are presently reconciled, even though in the past we were alienated. What I believe is so encouraging and powerful about this here in verse 22, there is no mention of the fact that we need to put our faith and trust in Jesus. Although we need to do that. Okay, we're not told you must repent, although we need to do that. We're not told you need to live this way, although we need to do that. What we're told is that he did the work. He's the one who did the work. Because God is the one who takes the initiative in redeeming men and women who are separated from him. God is the one who sends his son. The son is the one who says, yes, I will do it. The son is the one who lives his entire life and works out his entire earthly ministry with the knowledge that he is heading towards the cross. 
where he's going to take the impact of, of sin upon himself. He did it. It's not our faith that does it, right? Any more than, than when I turn on the water in the house that I'm the one who's making the water come into the house. Well, yeah, I might be like moving the nozzle and the water's coming out, but there's a pump underground run by power from the power company and the pump is pulling the water up and some folks at whatever company it is, mowing or whatever, you know, they were like, here's how we're going to deliver water through this thing and we'll got this nozzle on there so it'll spray. Like they, there's all this stuff that goes into it and I'm just like, I produce water. No, it doesn't work. It's not like... Our belief produces something. God is doing this. He is the one who is redeeming. He is the one who is absorbing the impact of our sin. He's the one who is planning and plotting and drawing us to Christ. Romans 5, 6 says this, while we were still weak. This is, this is before you had any intention of, of trusting Christ. Before you were like, I, I have problems and need God. Right? Before you were like, I will, I will pursue this. While we were weak, with nothing to offer God, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 of Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you are thinking about the fact that God gave you salvation in life, and yet your life does not reflect the amazing transformation that should come about when somebody puts their faith and trust in Christ. You you were not you were you were redeemed from your imperfections, but now you ought to be able to live in such a way that reflects the perfection of God's grace to him and shows that you are truly grateful. And so you look at your life and you think, how could you how could how could you love me, God, when I have not lived the way that you have called me to? I've not executed that perfectly. There's there's no way that you could love me the same way that you loved me before. You, you called me, you gave all these things to me, and look at the way I've ruined it and messed it up. Romans 5.10 says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul also says in Romans, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Think about this, okay? I, I want to, I want to, like, I hope you feel, if, if, you, if, you are, if you have these thoughts in your head, I want you to feel like I am coming at you and I'm trying to take your shield from you. I want to like hack through it and, and pull it away from you and throw it. Like I, I want you to bring these thoughts to the surface so I can savagely attack them with the word, okay? That is my intent. You are, you are calling God a liar 
when you say, his goodness is not enough to overcome my sinfulness. Or my sinfulness is enough to push his love away. You know what? That's not a sin that can't be overcome either. He pays for that too. You just need to work through it and present it to him. If, if God looks at us and sees sinfulness and knows that we are fallen and we are not redeemed and he gives us his son to redeem us, is he then going to keep track of us for the remainder of our life and at some point say, you know what, that's disqualifying and throw us away. No, he's not going to do that. His grace is new every morning. His faithfulness is great. He does not change, the Bible says, therefore we are not consumed. That's good news. While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies, while we were still weak, he bore our sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Um, <laughs> like uh, uh, two or three weeks ago, I was driving... And uh, I got one of those uh, notices in the mail, you know. (laughs) You were just driving, and we were watching you with our electric eyeball, you know. And you were driving through a 25-mile-an-hour area, and I don't know what it is. They're like, they film every single car, and they're like, oh, you went one speed, you know, one, one number over the speed that we're tracking, sending a note to you and to you and to you. Like, and they're just, you know... Collecting $40, $40, you know, you pay the 40 bucks, right? And it goes away. You've dealt with it. You, you've paid for it. It is done. They come back to me and they say, you are, you're, you're a violator of the law, you know? Yeah, but that's dealt with. It's been paid for. What's what's being said here, what Paul is, is saying is that your sins are put on Christ and they are dealt with on the cross. Listen to what that says, 1 Peter 2.24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. When God puts our sins on Christ... And then Jesus dies, they die with him. They are paid for and punished. Now, if, if, if you just keep bringing them up and dragging them out, like that's bad thinking, folks. Stinking thinking. Yeah, it needs, to be, it needs to be fought back against. You need to say, no, this is what the scripture says. Listen, we, we don't describe disguise Bible memory verses as fighter verses because it feels edgy or something, right? Like, that's not the intent. The intent is that our brains and, and the world and the devil often say, no, the truth is not true, and you should believe something else. And we say, no, and we fight back. With what? The truth that we've conceived in our own minds? No, the truth of God's word. Fighter verses are there so that the Holy Spirit can lay hold of God's word in our heart and in our mind 
and push back against the lies of the world. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The the purpose of the reconciliation is personal holiness. The, The result of reconciliation is personal holiness. Personal holiness does not earn reconciliation. We don't pay for our salvation with our personal holiness. We don't earn positive treatment from God with our holiness. That's the way the world works, right? Like you earn money at work and then you purchase televisions or food or whatever with that. You know, you are entitled to these things because you're given something that it does not work that way. God graciously gives us salvation. And then as a product of salvation, as an effect of it, personal holiness results by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And we ought to cooperate with that. And when we look at this passage, we look at verse 23. It says, verse 22 says that we're reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And that it's in order to present us holy and blameless above reproach before him. And then we read in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. And, and some of us start to get nervous, right? We, we, start, to, we start to get anxious and the, the fear rises in. Like we've been given this amazing promise and then, and then there's this, this exception or this clause that starts to weaken it, right? And it, it, it's like, oh, okay, here's something that I have to do. We'll deal with that in just a second. But Think about the fact that the purpose of, of why we've been saved is, 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 perf- is personal holiness. God doesn't make peace with us in order to make peace with sin. He makes peace with us in order to produce holiness in our lives. It, it, the, the, the work is to present us holy and blameless, right? Uh, holy is un, unblameable, un, uh, uh, without blemish, without spot. This is thinking about the temple sacrifices, which were, which were pure and, and holy. And so when Christ's righteousness is applied to us, God views us as blameless, holy, and without any stain or impurity accounted to us. The other word that's used, uh, blameless in the English, t- is, talks about unreprovable or un unable to be accused of of wrongdoing, free from accusation. Once we've been made right with God, we are free of any charge that could come against us. Now think about this, right? Revelation 12, 10, in the the book of Revelation in chapter 12, uh, the devil uh, is, is featured there, and he is called the accuser of the brethren. This is an echo back to, to Zechariah chapter 3, where uh, the high priest is there covered in excrement, and the devil is accusing him of, of unrighteousness and wickedness. And, and the, um, the, 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 the angel of the Lord says to change Joshua, the high priest's garments, into pure garments, change him from, from the ones that are defiled and give him new garments and purify him. And he's given a, a, a new headpiece and the word written on it is holiness unto the Lord. 
right? And that's not just like a, a, a bumper sticker that's slapped on this guy. That's his condition. The accuser of the brethren is pointing at him and saying he is disgusting and vile and horrible and needs to be condemned. He can't be the high priest. And God says, oh, yeah, watch, I purify him. And so we see the the devil in chapter uh, 12 of Revelation again called the accuser of the brethren. And the declaration is made. Revelation 12 10, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. What follows is is a recipe, folks. There's a formula here for conquering these these kinds of accusations that, that rise up in your mind. They conquered him By the blood of the Lamb, that's the work of Jesus on the cross, and the word of their testimony. The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not even their lives, even unto death. The blood of the Lamb is that great work of Jesus on the cross, which secures our forgiveness. And then our testimony is... I have nothing in me worthy of God's affection or care. But for some reason, he loves me even while I'm a sinner. And so when he offers me a savior, I say yes. And that's our testimony. That we were lost and desperate and in need. And God presented a savior to us and we said, yes, I want that. And that is enough to overcome the accusations of the devil. Now, here's the way I I think about this. When I think, okay, so is this something that I need to maintain? Is this something that I need to to hold on to and to not destroy? Am I going to ruin it? Okay. Jesus did this work. He reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He did it in order to, okay? Ephesians 2 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he determined that we would do beforehand, right? Like he plots out the good works. He saves us and redeems us so that we will do these things. He is thoroughly invested in us. What we're, what we're saying when we say we could lose this thing or we could ruin it or we could fail is that when Jesus does the work that somehow we can overcome it and ruin it. It's funny, for years I've, I've joked with Nancy and I say that, that she, doesn't, uh, she doesn't use recipes. She doesn't make food from recipes, right? Like I approach a recipe when on uh, the, the, you know, the, the rare occasion that I try to do something, I'm like, follow the steps precisely. Like, where is this measuring device? You know, like I need to mix the ingredients perfectly and I'm holding the recipe and I'm like, you know, it needs to be in the oven or this amount of time. And this, like I follow those steps terrified of ruining something. I'm always taking everything off the oven and she's like, just leave it. And I'm like, I don't want it to burn. You know, like fear. Everything that she cooks, she improves. She's like, I added this, I added that. Like there's no fear of of cooking there. She's like, here's the recipe's a guide. I do what I want. I added this, I added that. And it's better. She like tastes it in her brain. I don't know what that's like. (laughs) She just knows. 
you are Jesus' workmanship if your faith and trust is in Christ. You think he's going to let you ruin this? You think he's going to come before God the Father one day and say, you've given me all these people to redeem for your glory. And you know what? A bunch of them didn't cooperate. I just, you know, I let them go. Twelve billion of them, you know. Sixty-four million. You think that's, that's the way Jesus does stuff? Listen, the most fearful, horrific, scary, terrifying moment of his life was when he contemplated dealing with human sin. Giving up his perfection, not by his own act, but by taking on our own. And he said, isn't there a way we could save them without me having to do this? Somehow he knows the answer is going to be no. And he says, all right, not my will, but your will be done. I will do it. You think he's then going to just let us mess this up? He's not. That's not his way. And so these, these words here, as, as we close, these thoughts in, in verse 23 about our future glorification, the fact that we need to continue in the faith, that we need to remain stable and steadfast, that we don't shift from the hope of the gospel that, that we've heard, you know, these words are there to, to remind us, one, of the possibility that apostasy is real, that we can fall away and fade away. We can. We can abandon this truth. If we say, forget that, and we run away, it, it can happen. That's real. But if we, pers- if we seek to cling closely to Christ throughout our life, if we say, I'm a sinner in need of redemption, Lord, save me, draw me close to you, there's no way we can ruin this. There's no way. We need to think of ourselves the way God thinks of us and not introduce uh, human thinking in, into this here. We don't, we don't, uh, we're, we're responsible to remain and to abide and to draw close to Christ. And what this does is it, it introduces the idea into our thinking that, that, that we need to examine ourselves and we need to regularly prune sin and that that's important. But what, what Paul uses here when he talks about this is he says you need to remain stable and steadfast. He's, he's using an analogy uh, or, or a word in Greek that, that's used to describe uh, building something that's going to withstand an earthquake. That's going to withstand destruction and devastation. And, and so what he's saying to them is if you are in Christ... If you are faithful, if you trust in him, then you are built on a solid foundation, Jesus Christ. And you will continue in the faith and nothing will move you. We, we are so suspicious of a, of a free lunch, right? We're so suspicious that, that, that somebody's going to try to take advantage of us that when we read that this salvation is unshakable and then we hear, if you continue, right? Instead of, instead of reading that, that we're called to, to keep pushing forward, we read, there's a way that I can destroy this when in fact we cannot. We cannot ruin it because Jesus does not abandon what is truly his. He doesn't ever leave us or forsake us because he does not change. And so we're encouraged to examine ourselves and see if we are within the faith in 2 Corinthians 
13.5. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Because those changes and transformations that come into our life are there to confirm our salvation, not to call it into question. And so here is my encouragement to you. Put your faith and trust in Christ. And when you examine a passage of scripture like this, believe what it says about your past alienation and your present reconciliation and seek to hold fast to Christ and hold firm to him, putting your faith and trust in the work that he's done for you and not in all of the ways in which you fail to measure up to his standard. Believe what he says. Believe what what he points out to us about ourselves and what he has done for us instead of believing our own press. The world and the devil want you to doubt who you are. And even in some sense, our flesh still hangs on trying to pull us away from the truth of God's word. But we're saved by Christ's work on our behalf. It's our faith that activates it, but it is, it is not our faith that accomplishes it. It's the work of Christ on us. And believe that if God has begun a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of salvation. And so press on and press into your faith. Fight back against those, those thoughts which rebel and which would weaken your trust in God's will. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to open this word. I pray for each and every person here that, that they would, would see themselves built on the, the foundation of the word that comes from the apostles. They're built on the, the foundation of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Our lives are, are built on the foundation of the fact that you are a God who makes peace with his enemies. You are a God who is strong when we are weak. You are a God who, instead of calling us to deal with our sin, deals with it for us. You take the penalty and the punishment instead of pushing it back on us. You are good and gracious and kind. You've done all of this, and you call us to press forward in faith and trust in you and to live lives of holy gratitude. And I pray for each of us that that is what we would do. Lord, I ask that we would not doubt the goodness of your work on our behalf. And when we do, that once again, we would preach the gospel to ourselves and rejoice in it. We thank you for your kindness in Jesus. We pray that we'd write these words on our heart in his precious name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together. Amen.